Hey everyone, it's Dan Quintana here with the Physiology and Behaviour Podcast. This episode is a chat that I recently had with Azel Labashanya, who is the creator and founder of the Complete Thesis Support Group, and also has published a lot of excellent oxytocin research, among other topics. In our chat, we talk about open science, how academics can make the best use of social media, and strategies for responding to peer review comments. Hope you enjoy this. Right, let's get into today's session. So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Isella Bashani and I'm the creator and founder of this complete thesis support group and also the thesis mastermind. But we just, we basically just provide support to you guys and to students, you know, at any stage of their thesis and any topic, um, just to get you on top of your thesis goals, get that motivation happening again, um, and really just make the whole path and the journey that you're on a little bit more supported and fun, right? Um, so that's what we do. Um, we work on accountability, productivity. We help you with writing, um, you know, just anything. This is why engaging to our trainings are really great because it gives me some feedback in terms of what I can train you guys on. Um, so do engage, you know, say hello and tell us um, what's really going on for you at the moment. Um, so in today's chat, we're going to be a little bit ambitious. We're going to cover three big topics with Daniel. Um, you know, yes, they're big topics. I, I think we're going to scratch the surface of these topics, but they're really important and really current. And I would love for you guys to kind of be aware of these topics and then you can kind of go off and, you know, find some more information about these topics um, and look at some of the all the trainings and, and resources that Daniel's also offering. Um, so... Let me get to to introducing you guys to our special guest. So today we've got Dr. Daniel Quintana here um, from the University of Oslo. Um, he's a researcher. He's a podcaster, a blogger, you know, a websiter. You know, I don't know what you call yourself these days, Dan. You wear a lot <laughs> of hats. Um, so could you please tell us a little bit about, you know, who you are and what you're currently doing? Yeah, so uh, thanks for inviting me first. As well. I think this is uh, this is fantastic, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to our chat. Um, so yes, I'm, I'm based at the um, University of Oslo, but as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm not Norwegian. I'm I've come via via Sydney, where I where I grew up, and now I'm at the University of Oslo as a senior researcher working in psychoneuroendocrinology, which is the way that our hormones influence our um, our thoughts and behaviours. So I'm primarily working with the hormone oxytocin, which is um, commonly known for its role in, uh, in childbirth and in breastfeeding. But more recently, there's been a lot of interest in what oxytocin and how it influences um, our, our thoughts and behaviors. I'm also very interested in uh, meta-science, which is the science of science, ways that we can actually improve how we do our scientific research. Um, and uh, yes, I'm also a, a podcaster. I have a podcast called Everything Hurts, which discusses life in the biobehavioral sciences, but we have listeners from, from across all different types of research areas um, and, uh, and ways that we can improve um, research and research practices. So yes, I do, I do wear a, a, a lot of hats, uh, but uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. So yeah. Yeah, amazing. Well, we'll put some links in um, perhaps after the, the talk today about how we can find your podcast and a few other cool websites and resources that you offer. Um, so keep an eye for the links. We'll, we'll put them in the chat or somewhere. Um, all right, let's get into the first topic. Um, so the first thing we're going to talk about today was about open and reproducible sciences. Um, now, this has been a topic, you know, a flavour of the last few years. Um, I was wondering, Dan, if you can tell us a little bit about 
what 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 is it? What's open and reproducible sciences? What what do we mean by it? That's a great question. Uh, I think uh, what what's been happening at least within the past couple of years is there's been a lot of concern about a lot of research findings, um, particularly within psychology, but I guess across a lot of different research areas. A lot, of, a lot of the classic research findings that we find in our textbooks that we learn in our first year courses simply don't reproduce. People are trying to do these experiments again, and they're discovering that these these, these so-called seminal findings in the field that, that, were, that were reported decades ago simply don't reproduce. And this has been happening um, time and time again. So a lot of researchers have have been putting together ways that we can improve the reproducibility of, of our research using various research practices. Now, this is a really, really broad field. There are, there are different approaches that you can use. Um, this this can encompass things like uh, sharing your analysis scripts so other people can actually follow what you're doing, um, of, of pre-registering your hypothesis-driven work. Um, in order to actually, um, uh, so, so people can actually say, yeah, this is what, this is what was predicted, um, but beforehand, there's a lot of different ways that we can do this. But I guess for me, one, one of the main reasons that I got into this is, uh, this is something which has also influenced the oxytocin field, which I'm sure you're very familiar with as well, Azel, is that a lot of the early findings within, within the oxytocin research, uh, there's a very classic finding, for instance, that oxytocin in, in, in increases trust behaviors, which since, uh, then a lot of people have tried to replicate, um, but it hasn't. Um, people haven't been successful. So, open reproducible science is essentially ways that we can improve the the, the robustness and the reproducibility of our of, of our research um, use, using various um, using various means. So, I think it's it's, it's one of those things that um, more and more um, I, I've noticed a lot more job ads when you're looking for postdocs, for instance, are asking, do you have experience in open and reproducible science? So I think it's a real strength if students begin doing these research practices. And uh, a lot of people that I talk to think, oh, I almost get a little bit overwhelmed that there's just so much to learn. Oh, I have to learn how to do open scripts. I have to learn how preprints work. And I think it's really important to stress is that this, these things can be incremental. You don't need to have all these practices in your first paper or your second paper. Learn these things bit by bit and start by, um, and, and start by, uh, just, just introducing these things little by little. And what I love is there's such a great community online. Of, of people who, who are learning, who, who are sort of teaching other people about these practices um, and, and encouraging other people as well. So it's it's, it's, a, it's a really exciting space to be in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think we don't blame anyone for for the science that's happened in the past in some way. I think I always I always think of this going. Oh, I mean, we haven't done things particularly well in the past, and I feel like we can't just blame anyone. It's just kind of it's part of research. Like yeah. we kind of research and learn and discover and kind of find out that hey, there's there's actually better ways of doing things. Absolutely. Right? It's not really blaming what's happened in the past. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's that's true, and we, we can look back and we can say, okay, well, there there are ways that we can improve things, and and we can improve our our, our research in, in in the future. So yeah, there are certainly lots of ways that we can do this, um, and uh, I think a lot of it as well is is doing this actually advantages early career researchers, I think, because. Right now, a lot of the stuff, a lot of science is done behind closed doors. There isn't that much transparency in terms of how, um, how manuscripts are evaluated, um, how, and how all these processes work. And moving science to a more transparent science is going to, is going to uh, be a bit, be a benefit to early career researchers. So 
uh, I, I think it's to your advantage if you are an early career researcher yeah. to start adopting these things because it's it's going to be better for your career in the long run. Yeah, I can, I can definitely see that, you know, getting your work out there early and sort of getting it assessed and, you know, getting that feedback and things happening. So what is what is a specific thing that the students can kind of think about? You know, is it about, you know, uploading their work early? Is it about getting their registrations happening? Like if there's a few things that students, you know, say they're doing their first paper or maybe it's their second paper, what, what would be something that they can kind of do to get into the sort of new way of producing science? Uh, I think one of the the simplest things to begin with is by pre-printing your work. Um, Of course, pre-printing your work in which you submit an early version of your paper to um, to a preprint server. Um, It's more accepted in some fields. This this was first established within maths and physics. These folks have been doing this for for, for decades almost, but in other fields, it's becoming more and more common. And you'll find that uh, a lot of people are very hesitant going, oh, I I don't think journals are going to accept papers that have been presented previously. But most journals in most fields are now saying we are totally fine with paper. It's it's exactly the same as if you present your paper at a conference. Same sort of thing. You are presenting your work to get early feedback from the community. Preprints are the same sort of principle. So by doing this, um, then you can get early feedback on your work. But most importantly, especially for early career researchers, um, we we know that the, the, the review process takes such a long time and you might be applying for jobs and you've got two papers under review. Uh, whereas if you have preprint, then when you're applying for jobs, you can actually say, hey, these papers are under review, but you can read these papers right now. Here they are. And anyone can access them. Um, but on top of that, you can also get early feedback on your work. And I think it's very, very important in order to get that early feedback. So once you actually post your paper on this preprint server, um, then a, a lot of people have search alerts and mm-hmm. then you might have keywords and this pops up and they're like, this is fantastic. The main preprint servers um, are indexed by Google Scholar, which is one of the main databases that a lot of people use. You set up your search alerts and for me, um, I got search alerts for oxytocin, for instance, and every morning I get a few preprints and I'm like, this is very interesting. This is work yeah. that I would never have found um, until it was published and now I can read this stuff. So if you're a career researcher, um, you're not going to get scooped either. So rather than sort of hoping that your work gets accepted, your work can get published early as a preprint and you can um, hopefully get a, a little bit of uh, precedence as well with your work there as well. Yeah, I mean, the whole scooping thing is interesting that we sort of, you know, we're always nervous putting our work out there in case someone else is going to take our ideas. And that's that's perhaps how we used to think about our research. We're kind of behind closed doors. We didn't really put it out there until it was final. Um, whereas getting that early feedback and input just makes everything so much better. And I see for the students in particular that, you know, if it's been reviewed, you know, it's hard for your thesis examiners to kind of comment on it, right? There's always this benefit of having a, a peer-assessed publication in your thesis. It means your examiners can't really, um, you know, comment too much about it because it's been peer-reviewed. Um, and this is an early way to get kind of that sort of insights and, and, and feedback um, from society. Yeah, and I mean, I, I found at least with with, with my work when I've when I've preprinted it, um, if there's a specific area I want feedback on, then I'll, I'll literally email the researcher going, "Hey, I've done this preprint. Um, I've, I've mentioned a lot of your work. Can you let me know if I've actually interpreted interpreted this correctly?" So typically, what I'll do is. Um, I'll have a prepared paper, prepare it for submission, and I'll pre-print it and wait maybe two weeks. Because within that two-week period, 
that's when I usually begin to get some feedback, either from people who have noticed the preprint on a preprint mm-hmm. server or from people that I've contacted um, or from posting posting on social media and people finding it that way. Um, and then I can sort of like there's I've, I've had a few examples of I've posted something and people have said kind of, kind of politely, oh, I think you're I think you're wrong, <laughs> but I would much rather somebody tell me early earlier in the in in you know in the process that I've done something incorrect than for something to sort of sail past peer review. Peer review is my missedence published. It's very difficult to correct the publication record yeah. once things are published. But for a preprint, it's very easy. I, I uploaded a preprint this morning and mm-hmm. um, I noticed a typo, so I just. I just uploaded a second version, easy peasy, but it's very difficult to do that when you're actually submitting a paper. So it's a very nice way of doing things. And I love the fast feedback that you can get from preprints. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it gets, it gets off your table in some way that, you know, it's, it takes the pressure off or you've sort of got it to a stage where you just ready to shift it off onto (laughs) the publication platform. Um, you know, but you still have that chance to kind of make those corrections. You know, I'm always saying to students, don't rush, you know, don't dump your work on reviewers ever. Get it get of it course, well written course. and well ready. Um, but you still you still obviously miss things. And I think like I think the good point you made is about, you know, get those corrections if there's anything there or just slight tweaks that you get from feedback and get them in now rather than sort of at that sort of late stage or perhaps, you know, it's too late where it's already been published. Um, and then it's it's really hard to correct things, right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. So what are some of the platforms that students can kind of access? You know, if you can just name a couple of platforms for them to kind of upload their preprints. I think the best one for now is Open Science Framework um, because it covers all areas of the sciences. And I think now the humanities as well. And they've also got really great training materials too. So the great thing I love about Open Science Framework is that cool. it supports the, the whole life cycle of research. You can pre-register your hypothesis-driven research on Open Science Framework you can include your data. So if you're submitting a paper and there's open data, you can also store your data there as well. And you can have your preprints um, um, stored there too. So it's a really nice way of, of, of tracking the, um, the, the, the whole cycle of, um, of, of your research. So I use Open Science Framework for most of my papers. And within that, there are also subfields. So for instance, for psychology, there's SciArchive, which is hosted within Open Science Framework, but just a subsection of Open Science Framework. And I think there's about 20 different sort of smaller preprint servers um, which are hosted on the Open Science Framework um, te- technology. But I will check them out and they've got some fantastic resources on on how to pre-register your work, if you have hypothesis-driven work, how the preprint process works as well, and just ways of, of, of introducing more reproducible science. Um, yeah, they've, uh, we did, uh, on Everything Hurts, we, we, we interviewed um, Brian Nosek, who is the founder of Open Science Framework. And um, if you want to learn more about it, I, I'd have to listen to that. I, I, can, I can send the link there. But it's a great way of, um, uh, it, was, it was just really eye-opening of seeing like just, just the need that he, was, that he saw, uh, like we, we need to improve science. But um, look, look a, lot of the, a lot of these things have been uh, not new ideas. These things have been proposed decades mm-hmm. ago, but the infrastructure hasn't mm-hmm. been there. Um, but one of the things about Open Science Framework is, you know, to, to make it easy. And the way that they do it, it's all, it's all free, of course, is that they make preprints easy. They make pre-registration easy. Um, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. So um, anyone that wants to do this should, um, should check it out. But of course, there are more traditional preprint servers um, like BioArchive um, as well. A lot of people use that. Um, so it just depends on your subfield. But I think if you want to get started and you're not yeah. sure where, I'd go with Open Science Framework. 
Amazing. Yeah, and we can put a link to that as well yeah. in the comments below. And um, I was just thinking in terms of another benefit of, of why you should sort of get the open science things happening is that, you know, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but can you attract citations on some of the work? Absolutely. Um, so the good thing is um, for Google Scholar as well, you can actually, if you have a few citations on your preprint and then the preprint becomes a published paper, you can merge those two things. And you can actually m- merge your citations. Um, so yeah, you can absolutely get um, citations on your preprints. And I've got plenty of preprints which um, started gathering citations while the paper was under review. The paper was finally accepted somewhere, and then I was able to merge those two things together. Uh, but yeah, you can absolutely get those citations there. And the good thing is the culture is shifting. Maybe uh, you know five ten years ago, people would be hesitant to cite preprints, um, but that's absolutely changing now. I think, um, at least within a lot of research fields, it's totally acceptable to um, to just decide a preprint. So that's not going to be a problem. And um, look, it's a great way to, to start accruing citations early by, by posting your preprints. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, we all got citations, especially at the moment <laughs> in some ways that, you yeah. know, the more citations, the better. And I think especially with students, you know, mm. get if you can get this happening for you at, at your sort of thesis level, um, you know, for your first publications, like I always say to the students, every every publication matters, you know, and make them quality high end, you know, get the feedback from, you know, from people, from your supervisors, from your team. But if you can upload it, you know, and get that sort of peer review kind of feedback early before you submit it, um, there's those sort of benefits. There's the benefits of actually attracting citations already, which is good for, you know, grant applications and everything else that, you know, you kind of do as academic later on. Um, so I really, yeah, I mean, there's, there's lots of really cool benefits. Do you see this keep evolving? Do you think the open sciences and reproducibility platforms are really just now starting off and there's, there's so much more that's going to come? Or do you think we're sort of where we're at? No, I think there's a lot more to come. I mean, I still do a lot of talks on this and I'll talk about preprints and I'll ask, I'll ask the crowd, um, are you familiar with preprints? And sometimes at least one quarter have never heard of them. So I think it's very easy within sort of the bubble that you're in if, if you're sort of, you know, depending on the department that you're in or if you're very involved with social media, uh, you might think that everyone is on top of these things, but it's simply not the case. And, and of course, these things shift from discipline to discipline. Um, there, mm. there are different, uh, the, the rate of uptake is, is is quite different. And, you know, speaking to some colleagues in the humanities, like the, the I, I talk about preprints and they're just like, oh, like it's just, it's, it's, it's very, it's very new. Um, but hey, this was exactly the same within psychology 10 years ago. The concept of preprints was very new, but things have sort of, moved very, very quickly. And um, I, I think that's great. So there's a lot more room to move, I think. Um, f- fortunately, almost every single journal now, at least with our, within our field, is, is totally fine with preprints. Um, but I guess, you know, things now that things are becoming easier in order to do open science, it's just, it's, it's a lot more people are going to be able to do it. So, but I still think there's a lot more room to move, um, you know, um, but um, it's what we're seeing so far is, 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 is very encouraging. Yeah, that's great. I mean, there's there's always a bit of hesitancy when it comes to new things and changing our habits and the way we do things. Um, I mean, I personally was sort of hesitant at the very start, thinking, "Oh, this is just something else I have to put on my plate and learn and work out." But it's actually a pretty simple process. It's it's actually it's actually the same things that you would normally do in some ways. You're just kind of doing it in kind of a stage way, right? It's not really. A is not daunting. A, it's, you know, B, it's just a simple process of uploading things. There's there's actually no 
no extra learning about, right? It's, it's very simple to do all this. Yeah, and one way I like to think about it is it doesn't take longer, but you're simply shifting where things happen. So, so for instance, um, yeah. quite often when you're doing a review and yeah. a reviewer will ask you, oh, can you redo these analyses? Then if you're doing it the, the traditional way, you sort of might have files everywhere and things aren't organized and it might take you a long time to, to, to actually redo your analysis and get everything right. But if you're taking the approach where when you submit your paper, you also post your analysis scripts, say, online, then it's very easy to actually go back and tweak your analysis mm-hmm. scripts. So it might have taken you a little bit longer to organize your research at the beginning, but you're going to save time at the end when you're revising your paper. So it takes the same amount of time, but you're simply just distributing where that time is actually spent. Um, and uh, look, I, I think it's your most important collaborator is yourself in the future. And by doing these open science practices, you're helping yourself in the future when it comes to finding those analysis scripts. Um, you know, th- th- one of the big benefits of, um, of, of, of doing open science or one of the sort of s- smaller things is like version control, for instance, version control for your manuscripts. I think we all have that, um, that folder on our computer, which is, um, final, final, final version, ver- version seven <laughs> of our manuscripts. Um, and it's very hard figuring out like what was the one that I actually submitted, but you know, I've changed my workflow quite a lot over the past few years. So now um, I do version control for my, for my manuscripts. So I know exactly the paper that was submitted. For, for, for instance, it's very easy to go back and think and see how things were things th- things have changed over time. And yeah, of course, there's a little bit a little bit of a learning curve to begin with, um, but I think it's absolutely worth it. And you're going to save time in the long run um, when when you're doing these things. Mm, it's it's yeah and it's going to be part of the future as well and it'll help you as well in, in so many different ways um all right well a really cool topic and i know there's there's, there's a lot more to this topic um that we can learn and talk about um i'm going to shift a little bit to something that um you mentioned to me about how we can use different platforms and this is more the the social media platforms to really boost our research and our research careers what are you on about when it comes to this? <laughs> uh, look, I think yeah, quite a lot of our PhD programs, they, they really focus on, on learning specific skill sets or specific tools. It might be a type of analysis. It might be like using R or using SPSS or, or what have you. But uh, I'm truly convinced that learning social media and how to use social media for your career is, is another super important toolkit a tool that you should have in your toolkit for your research, um, especially if you're an early career researcher, because as you may have learned, or you are going to learn eventually, is there is a ton of gatekeeping within academia. Um, there's gatekeeping when it comes to actually submitting your, your work to journals, submitting your ideas to journals, um, when it comes to who, who gets asked to do presentations at conferences, um, when it comes to getting your work out in the media. Um, it, you, you always tend to see this, the, the, the same faces there. Um, but, and it can be very difficult to sort of break in and, um, and do that. And traditionally, the only way you could do that is you'd either have to already be famous. You have to have a famous mentor. And if you're listening and have a famous mentor, you're very lucky. Um, you have to repeatedly win the peer review lottery or the grant lottery, or you can do one thing which everyone can do. And that is to be active on social media. If you're active on social media, it's a fantastic way to actually get your research out there free of gatekeeping. Previously, if you want to get your work out there in the media, you have to sort of maybe pitch yourself to a, to a, to a news 
to a newspaper. I've had so many times where a, a journalist will contact me going, oh, can you comment on this story? I'm like, yeah, great, cool. I'm going to get to talk about my work. And then you get an email going, oh, sorry, your, your story got bumped off. Uh, maybe we can revisit it later. You have no control over these things. But when you're actually posting stuff on social media, um, then you're, you're in the box seat and you're able to do that. And I think I think we, we, can, we all experience the same sort of thing where you're, you're catching public transport to, to work and everyone's staring on their phones. That's where everyone is, is 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 spending their attention, and if you can sort of get within that attention cycle, then it's going to be great for your career, um, for for finding collaborators. Um, I found a ton of collaborators by being act- active on social media, um, for getting invites to stuff, whether it's you know speaking at at labs or speaking at conferences. Um, once people see that you sort of know what you're talking about, or 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 see that you're um, knowledgeable in certain topics. Then, then you're gonna you're gonna start getting these invites to speak at labs and to speak at conferences. Whereas previously, the only way to get these invites was to be famous or to be mates with someone who's famous. Um, it, it's the great leveler, and it really gets around gatekeeping um, for, for for presenting our work. And it's just it's such a good way of getting our work out there. Yeah, uh, that, that's really cool. I mean, I think. Um there's so much out there now for, for, for social media. Like I'm wondering, are you talking TikTok or are you sort of more talking yourself out there on Twitter and LinkedIn? Like what 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 do you think? Is, I mean, it's also full on to kind of maintain some of these social media for platforms. Sure. Um, I think it really depends on your audience. Um, if you want to attract more younger people, then TikTok is the way to go. Um, I posted a TikTok video <laughs> explaining some of my research um, and – it got like a ridiculous amount of views, like 15,000, 20,000 views, just a, a, a 15 second video that, that took me about a minute to make. Compared to the actual views that paper I was talking about got, which is about 400 for the paper, it's just, it's, it's such a good way to, to, to chat about your work and you've got a captive audience. So if you want to attract more younger audience, TikTok's fantastic. Um, I think if you, um, if you want to get, um, you know, slightly older demographics, then, then Facebook is the way to go because that's where the, that's where the attention is. Um, but, um, I think if you want to start talking to, um, other researchers and the general public, um, then, then Twitter is something that you should be considering. Um, um, as, as, as a scientist, I think, I think Twitter is especially important. Um, so important. I actually wrote a book about this. It's a free book. So I'm, I'm not plugging anything to make money. Uh, I wrote a free book, uh, Twitter for scientists, which I can, which I can put a link in. Um, um, because, um, I, I was finding I've, I've been doing sort of a few workshops in social media and, uh, I don't have enough time to actually talk through the, the mechanics and how to use Twitter. I'm more kind of like, Hey, this is something you should really consider. And then I point to the book going, here is how you can do it. And this is from sort of like beginner stages to intermediate stages to advanced stages of ways that you can do that. And uh, a really cool thing I put at the end is a Twitter boot camp. So if you're not sure what to tweet, I've got a, a 30 day Twitter boot camp, which I give, um, two options or two prompts per day of things that you can tweet. Um, because I, I think when it comes to learning new skills, when it comes to building collaborators and when it comes to sharing your work and also for getting feedback by posting preprints, um, Twitter, at least for now, is is where a lot of people are paying attention. But of course, there are other platforms like like TikTok are fantastic. Um, um, uh, Facebook, I, th- I think YouTube is, is underappreciated. Um, I, I read a stat that mm-hmm. the second biggest search engine is actually YouTube. So um, some of my stuff, it's I, I think a lot of people worry. Oh, I, I don't have the good the good um, the the film equipment or, or good sound. My most viewed videos are the ones which have the worst quality <laughs> the worst quality video and the worst quality sound. Very surprising. <laughs> like um, the, the the ones with the worst quality just got a lot of views because people at Google, you know, you know how. 
what is oxytocin or what is heart rate variability or how do you do meta-analysis? And for some reason, the, the algorithm gods have smiled on me and um, these things have got a ridiculous amount of use um, because people are using, um, you know, because YouTube comes up high in search. So there's different ways you can do it. And I think as well as like um, there are different f- forms of media that sort of suit every type of personality. Some people are like, I'm never doing video and that's cool. You can podcast. Um, podcasting is fantastic. I love it. I've been doing it for about four or five years now. Um, you only, you only, you only need to buy like a, you know, like a $50 microphone and you're good to go. That's all you need. Every, everything else is, is, is cheap or, or, or very free. And yeah. it's a great way to, to discuss your work and to, to meet other researchers. And of course, there's blogging as well. So if you like writing, um, then you can do, then you can do blogging or getting more, more, more involved. Um, that, that sort of way. So there's, there's different sort of things you can do. If you can do video, that's fantastic. If you can do audio, that's great. And if you can do something like blogging or using more text as well, um, that you have, you have options there. So look, I, I just think it's, it's, it's really important. Um, and, and to get started early in your career as well, start talking about your work. A lot of people think I'm not the expert. No, no, no. You're in a PhD program. You're in a master's program. You, you, you are, you're the expert the, compared to like a whole swathe of, of, of the population. You have a lot of important stuff to say. So don't think that you're not the expert because you, you are. And that, that's a really common thing that I hear from students as well. They, they just don't feel like they know anything, right? And then they, they're sort of scared to go to their supervisors because they feel like they're not going to know all the answers. And, yeah. But I think it doesn't take much to become an expert. Like if you just spend a bit more time, you know, on that specific topic that you're studying, you're an expert, you know, and you're probably more an expert than your supervisor often because yeah. you're fully into that topic. Whereas as supervisors, we're across a few topics and a yeah. few different projects that – you know, absolutely, I value the students' input because they are so much more closer to that particular topic that they're in than we are, right? And this is absolutely where I think, you know, don't feel like you're not the expert. And I, I do like that comment that you've made in particular. Um, I think with social media as well, like there's so much use you can get out of it at different stages of your career, right? And I, I see that, you know, you, you can advertise your research, your recruitment, your participant things. You know, if you've got online surveys, it's really good for sort of being things out um you, know, you can kind of use it for different parts of your your research right not just to promote your publications at the you know the end result but also that kind of early stuff right absolutely and i think people who just post about their publications is it's a bit boring um it's it, it's almost like mm. sort of going mm. on on the street and sort of shouting here's my publication and then they just sort of disappear <laughs> i think what's more interesting and what, what's more compelling is is the process i i find that way more interesting and I never think to myself, what am I going to tweet today? What am I going to post today? I post my process. Oh, here is a cool paper that I read. I I post it. Um, Here is a cool package that I use in R. I post that. Um, I I sort of post my process. And because, of course, if you're only posting publications, you're not going to be tweeting very often. I think it's fine to do that, but it's much more interesting if you're talking about your process and you bring people along for the ride. Um, th- those, are the, those are my favorite accounts to follow. People who are, who are posting the things they're discovering along the way um, and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. It's, 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 it's much, much more interesting and it's going to give you much more stuff to talk about as well if you're talking about what you're doing from, from, from day to day. I mean, personally, what I do is I, I use the, um, the Pomodoro technique 
um, for, for, for work where I'll, I'll, I'll switch off the internet for, for 45 minutes and I'll do my writing, I'll do my task and then I'll take a break, 10 minutes. But that break is usually me just sort of, oh, what's, what's going on on Twitter? What's going on on TikTok? I might post a few different things and talk about what I've sort of done recently. Yeah. And then I'll sort of, all right, it's, it's break time. Cause if you don't sort of set those limits in, then of course the, 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 the 10 minute break can turn into an hour break. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I just kind of think about, what have, I been, what have I been doing over the past hour? Not, not, you know, I don't need to think about like some, some sort of grand concept or some grand thought. I'm just, 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 just posting, posting my thoughts and posting what I'm working on. Much, much easier. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we spoke about Pomodoro in this group a fair oh, bit cool. as well, just yeah. how, how, how useful it is, right? And we can all use it. And I, I still use it. Um, and I kind of make it, you know, just suit me and my time, you know, but I do the at least one or two cycles, you know, of maybe 25 minutes, five minutes off, 25 minutes, five minutes. Um, but I think the thing with social media that I want to kind of come back to is that um, it can be that distraction as well. Um, but you know, and this is where the Pomodoro is good if you're trying to get some work done, you know, and actually focusing on the work and not having these pop-ups and, you know, things happening from social media. But, you know, use it. Use it for all its use, you know, in some ways. Yes, it's a social aspect, you know, but there's so much you can get out of for your, for your research, you know, put your name out there, get yourself famous almost, you know, early on rather than sort of letting the, the gods find you, you know, if they're lucky to find you, you can actually put yourself out there, which I think is, is a really cool point that you've made. You know, and do it early on. You know, there's there's so much value in putting yourself out there um, and being confident to do it because everyone's doing it. You know, it doesn't actually matter what you put out there and how you say it. You know, it, it'll be interesting to someone, right? These yeah. platforms are, I don't know how many people are on these platforms that, you know, the reach is incredible. You know, you're definitely going to be, you know, useful to someone out there. Um, so don't be, you know, I guess I had a bit of social anxiety. I think when I first came into social media, thinking, I don't know if what I've got to say is going to be, you know, valuable to people. Um, and then I realized, and I think the point that you made about the process is you just sort of tweet what you're doing because what you're doing is so beneficial to probably a lot of other people, right? Yeah. Um, it doesn't have to be a smart comment about, you know, or a really good summary about a particular paper or your paper, or whatever. It can just be, this is what I've learned today. This is what I'm doing because that's, that's enough, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and not being yourself is exhausting. You know, it's very hard to sort of maintain a facade yeah. of, you know, oh, I have to sort of tweet in a certain way. I just, I just tweet what I think because I, I yeah. wouldn't be able to maintain it otherwise. Um, uh, yeah. And, and I, I think you hit the nail on the head that, that there is, there's always going to be some, a group of people who are interested in what you do. No matter how niche you think your research is, people are interested. If, if the journal exists in your research field, there are going to be people interested mm-hmm. in what you do. And people still within, even within different research fields, uh, find this stuff interesting. That's why I like talking about the process. I mean, I have, tons of different people from different research fields that follow me in like sort of like really surprising stuff. Um, but they, 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 they follow it because they enjoy sort of coming along with the, for, for, for my research journey. It just sounds a bit corny, but you know, that's, that's, that's just how it is. Pe- people are enjoying that sort of stuff. Um, so you, you, you never know. And, uh, it's very easy to have that self doubt of like, no one's going to find myself interesting. Um, everyone starts with zero followers. It's just that, yeah. that's that's the reality, and so just and it, it can take time, and um, you know it's it's not about. I would much rather have one hundred people who are really interested in my work than have sort mm-hmm. of ten thousand followers just for the sake of having followers. Doesn't doesn't mean anything, but by building those 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 connections be, be, be between people who are very interested in your work, um, it, it can really open up a, a, lot, a lot of doors. So, but it's not just about sort of getting your name out there, but it's also about learning stuff. Like I use Twitter a lot to learn. Like I, I basically retaught myself statistics 
during my postdoc via Twitter and via blog posts. Um, I, I didn't pay much attention during my PhD for statistics. I did the, I did the bare minimum <laughs> and I really hated it. But now I love it. I absolutely love it. And I'm like, I'm here. I am like writing papers about like methodology because I just totally got into it. But I learned a lot of these stuff purely through social media and Twitter. So it's not just about putting yourself out there, but it's also using it as a resource to actually learn a lot of stuff. And the amount of times I'll, I'll have a question about stats and I'll post it and within, you know, w- within five minutes, I got like three different responses. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's so much, it's better than Google. <laughs> it's, very, it's, yeah. it's, it's really yeah. nice. Yeah, it's, it's really quality that you get from, from Twitter in some ways. Yeah. You know, you've, you've got an audience there that's sort of in the field that's specific. It's all, you know, it's all quality. It doesn't have to be quantity. Like you said, you don't need a thousand people to follow and, you know, a thousand likes. You know, if one or two quality likes, it's, it's meaningful, right? Um, you know, yeah, really good, really good platforms to, to get into get into because it it's going to be part of the future as well. Yeah, de- <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a bit of playing the algorithms. I'm not sure how much you know about this and people feel like you always have to be there consistently to kind of play with the algorithms and, you know, get your name out there enough. But I think just start, you know, start tweeting, start, you know, putting your research, you know, recruitment out there, you know, and you'll yeah. see that the engagement is actually quite fun. It, it feels like there's people out there supporting you. You know, there's a lot of sort of indirect benefits that comes from just having a bit of a community around you that engages on your posts and your, your things that you're putting up there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's super nice. And like, I think, I think one of the best ways to sort of get involved is, is reply to other people, um, and, and start building your stuff there. If, if someone's posted something interesting and, and just doing a, you know, a, a comment on that, that's fantastic. Um, but I, well, one thing I do like about Twitter compared to other platforms is it's less sensitive to algorithms. Um, so, some platforms are very sort of algorithm centric, but, um, uh, Twitter in general <laughs> is, is less so. So it's more, um, you know, somebody with 10 followers. Um, who does a tweet is more likely to go. I mean, the goal isn't to go viral, um, but it's more likely to happen um, on, on Twitter versus versus other other, other platforms. Yeah, yeah, great, super useful. And I, I noticed um, LinkedIn as well have gone sort of it's become back up in terms of yeah. being a, a platform. Like I, I had to embrace it lately as well because mine. I've always had my profile up there, but I feel like there's so much more science and research being discussed there that I, I've never thought about it as a as a tool to use at the moment. Whereas it, I don't know if you've noticed a change in, yeah, in LinkedIn. I totally have. I, I've totally changed my mind because I sort of I got a profile when it sort of opened up a couple of years ago, kind of ignored it for a bit. And then a few people were saying like there's some really interesting stuff happening there. And I I, I almost see it as kind of like um it's a very sort of positive version of facebook like everyone of course is putting their best professional foot forward um so the sort of there's the, the quality of posts that you get are, are much nicer and I, i'm actually quite surprised at, at linkedin and i think um it's not necessarily a place um it's not you know compared to other industries maybe it's not the place to find a job um but it's definitely a place to start to start sort of learning stuff and put, putting stuff out there um, and like, I've learned a lot of really cool stuff. Like <laughs> I randomly saw, um, um, a sort of, uh, and a thing for an advertisement for like a, like a prize. So I posted it and I only saw this on LinkedIn. I was like, Oh, okay. I might apply for this and end up winning it. And I would never, I never would have known about it if it wasn't for LinkedIn. Like you, there's just certain things that you kind of see on there that you don't necessarily, necessarily see on other <laughs> platforms. And it's, um, and the other thing is, you know, um, the, <laughs> 
a lot of research administrators at universities and at research funding councils as well are on LinkedIn, yeah. but they're not on Twitter. So it's a really, it's a really good way to get yeah. to know sort of more administrative yeah. staff because that's where these, that's where the administrative staff are living, not necessarily on Facebook and Twitter. So there's, um, yeah, that's something that I've noticed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so check out yeah, check out LinkedIn. Yeah. That, how to, and you can post things like it's got almost got the Facebook interface yeah. now. With you know, you can post a post and you can tag things and tweet. I mean, tweet you can hashtag and you know, yeah, it's just um yeah, and like you said, it's almost that more professional kind of contained. You know, everyone's on the good behaviour type environment, yeah. which is pretty good as well. It's actually quite nice. But I've I've noticed the amount of views that I get from LinkedIn instantaneously is quite big. Yeah. Like it just, um, I feel like I almost get a lot more views on some of the things that I post out there um, much quicker. Um, so, yeah, I really, yeah, I've, got, I've gone back on and updated things on, on LinkedIn again. Um, all right. Well, thanks for that. That's a really cool topic and a, a very current thing that you know, I think we, we all have to embrace in terms of social media. Um, so another, the final topic we're going to talk about today Um is about how to respond to reviewer comments. And I know a lot of the students in this group and, you know, some of the ones that I've been talking to specifically as well, um, they all are in this sort of stage of either submitting papers, revising papers, um, you know, they they have been dealing with reviewers, you know, they, they feel, you know, frightened by it some ways and they don't know how to do it best um, and kind of they sometimes left to do it for, you know on the, on the, by themselves and so they always ask me what is the best angle to take when it comes to responding to reviewers so yeah what's what's your advice yeah i mean th- there are always small differences from discipline to discipline um but i think the the, the overarching golden rule is uh don't frustrate your reviewers when your reviewers uh, are reading your responses make it as clear as possible um, how you've responded to um, to their query. So something that I like to do is I like to sort of if they haven't the, re- the reviewers haven't done this already, I number each query they have and then specifically respond to that query. Um, and you don't necessarily have to agree with, with, with every single query as well. Um, it's fine to disagree, but of course you should outline why you're disagreeing why, rather than just flat out ignoring them. Um, and then um, by, by, by responding to reviewers, but also putting in the section. So if, if you've updated a section of text, they might have said, this sentence is unclear. And you're like, okay, that's that's reasonable. I've, a lot of people will just say, I've updated the sentence. Um, and then what you're doing is you're forcing the reviewer to go back into the manuscript, have a read through going, oh yeah, they updated the sentence. But one way to reduce that sort of frustration for the, for the reviewer is to actually paste in that sentence that you've done within the mm-hmm. response. So rather than actually going back to the manuscript where, they, where someone's flicking between two documents, they can actually see inst- instantaneously, oh, that's how they changed that. Uh, literally before I was chatting to you, um, um, I was, I was peer reviewing a manuscript and th- this, this was a revision and I couldn't make head, t- head or tail about what the, what the authors were doing because they've said, we've changed this thing and they didn't actually explain how. And I had to go back hunting through the manuscript and that was really, really annoying. Everyone is very time poor right now. So if you can actually reduce the amount of time that it takes for a reviewer to go through, um, and to actually see what you've changed, then you're going to go a long way to, 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 just to helping yourself out in, in that sort of way. So I, I always think it's better to err on the side of adding more detail. Like I don't think I've ever read a, a, a response to a reviewer or a, a response to my review comments and thought there was too much detail there. I think more the more detail the better. It's better to err on that side rather than have 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 too less detail as well, and just outlining outlining what you can do and how you sort of change things. Um, it, it's a really it's a it's a really good way 
to 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 respond to reviewers. But yeah, I mean, it's 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 very tricky. Um, it's one of those things that I never received training for. And I guess one way that I did that was my supervisors sort of would sit with me and that they'd send me, oh, this is how I've done stuff in the past. So this is what I do with my students in when we're sort of doing it together, I'll kind of show, okay, I want you to start doing this yourself, but here are some previous responses to reviews that I've done. So you can actually see how I structure it. You can see the numbers, you can see the responses, um, you can see how I sort of paste things in uh, from from the examples there. So um, if you're not sure, simply simply ask your colleagues, ask your supervisors, how do you do it yourself? Um, because of course, like I said, there's, there's going to be some different conventions between fields. Um, but overall, do not frustrate your reviewers. Make their job as easy as possible and you can go a, a long way to hopefully having a, a, a successful um, experience. Yeah, I mean, you can almost think of the reviewer just reading your response letter yeah. and, you know, that should almost be enough for them to sort of get the gist of whether you've answered the question, whether you're making the right edits because you've pasted in the the actual paragraph section or something like that. But, yeah, absolutely, don't annoy them. That's one <laughs> message that you said. Um, make their life easy in terms of, you know, because we are time poor. Um, you know, what, what do you do if there is a disagreement, if you just don't agree with a particular point? How would you angle that sort of response? Um, I mean, I'll, I would spend a little bit more time explaining why I don't disagree. Um, sometimes when – I think it's natural – when someone says that you're that 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 you're wrong, to sort of instantly bristle against that and want to disagree, but quite a lot of times, um, I go through this, I go through this cycle of like I get I get a I get a reviewer um, comments and I'm like that's that's just so silly like they're, they're, what are they talking about They should be stripped of their PhD and when, then when, when I sleep on it and look at it, read it again, time <laughs> and time again I realize, oh, hang on a minute. I, they're, they're not wrong. And I think about it a bit more and I'm sort of writing about and reading about it and I'm like, oh man, they're, they're right. That they, they, they were super right. So uh, of course, there are going to be times where reviewers are going to be wrong. Um, but a lot of the times when, when I'm doing my responses, I actually realize that, um, that in the end, <laughs> they're correct. But look, still, there have been a number of times where I still believe that they're incorrect. And so I just spend a little bit of extra time um, the, the worst thing that you can do is to just ignore it or telling them they're wrong, but spending a, like a lot of extra time actually explaining what you did. Um, sometimes um, one, one example is a review will go, oh, I think you should take this statistical approach. Um, and then what I do is I actually, um, uh, you know, I don't agree that that's the best one. I run it anyway to demonstrate, hey, even if we were to do this approach, we get the same sort of outcomes and perhaps I might put that in the supplement or perhaps not depending on the context. And then I can actually demonstrate the reviewer. I took your advice seriously, um, but even taking your advice, I get yeah. the same sort of revolt, results as if, you know, doing the, 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 the what I believe to be the correct way. So it's about respecting the reviewer. They spent time doing the review um, and actually explaining why you don't disagree. And look, the, the times that I've disagreed, um, I, I think the outcome has, has, has always been okay. The editor can sort of see what you're doing and the reviewer can 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 respect that. Uh, or, or, or sometimes you just need to meet, need, need to meet halfway. It, it, it all depends on the context. Um, but um, it's totally fine to, to disagree because sometimes reviewers are wrong. Yeah, I think sometimes they they just miss it because they are they are rushing through it. But I always kind of say, well, have I have I written something clearly enough? Because if they've missed something, then I always go, well, did I actually put my writing in the best way for them to not get confused and misinterpreted? You know, I always kind of go back. You know, is there expression or is there some sort of language or something in my writing that made them sort of misunderstand my point? Um, you know, and then I always say, you know, yes, you know, I don't always agree. Here's it, but I've now sort of made 
you know, I've better clarified this in the writing. Like I always go back to my writing thinking, well, I lost them or I've made something a little bit unclear or vague. Is there something better I can do with my actual writing um, to make sure that I don't get confused or I don't miss the point, if that makes sense? Um, no, that, that's absolutely spot on. Like that, that kind of seems like it doesn't seem like feedback, but I think it is feedback. If they don't understand what you're saying, um, the natural response is no, my writing is great, but no, it's not because, because they did not, they misunderstood what, what, what you've, what you've written. So it's good because you can sort of go back and, uh, and re, and re, and re look at what you did. And it, even the simplest thing like reading out aloud what you've written can really go, ah, yeah. oh, my writing's really clunky. <laughs> um, I, I need, I need to, I need to redo that. So I mean, that, that's what, that's kind of the, the last thing that I do before I submit a paper or I submit responses. I spend the time and I read it out aloud and I'm, and that, that's when I pick up a lot of things where that doesn't make sense or the flow doesn't go. So that's, that's a nice little tip there for, um, for, for, um, for the final check. For, for your research and uh, you know of improving the writing and just just also just getting as many people as possible to to, to read. I mean, we have that's one reason we have co-authors for to, to read this stuff. Um, but even just getting other people just to, just to check your writing um, is is chances are it's going to improve improve what you're doing. Yeah, definitely. Um, I was wondering whether you've got any how you would how quickly do you return your response to reviewers. Uh, if I can, I try and do it as, as soon as possible. Um, I, I guess for two reasons. One, because it's fresh in the editor and reviewer's minds. Um, people are reviewing a lot of different stuff and working a lot of different things. And, uh, look, I understand for a lot of people, things are delayed at the moment. So things take time and that's fine. But if you have the opportunity, uh, personally for me, like I try and shift my things around to make these, to, to, to make my responses a priority. Uh, I know some people don't have that luxury. Um, but if you can, um, I would do that. And it also gives a sense of, Hey, no worries. Like, you know, what, what you suggested was, was totally fine and didn't take me too long to do. So if you have the opportunity to, to rearrange your schedule, um, then I would make that a priority. And it, it also, you know, it's, 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 it's fresh in your mind as well. Um, when you get the responses there and, and fresh in the mind of the reviewers and the editors. So that's something that I try. It doesn't always happen. <laughs> there's, there's two sets of reviews that are taking a long time because they're very complex. Um, so if you can't do that, it's not the end of the world. Yeah. Um, but if you can do that, um, then prioritizing that is, um, can, can, can really help, I think. Yeah, we sort of have a. What sort of approach do you take for those kind of things as well? Yeah, we we work on, um, especially with my students as well. We work on a two week turnaround okay. if we can. I mean, it depends on it depends on the extent of the the revisions that needs to happen, but we we jump on it. And um, if it's a student, you know, it's, if it's a student's paper, then um, I really make that a priority for them and sort of go, well, let's let's shift some of the things you're doing at the moment and let's get this paper back in. Because I mean, the best thing is to have a back off your table again, right? Because if it just sits there over your head, I it kills me um, <laughs> to know that I still have a paper sitting that needs, needs to you know, have revisions done. And I, I mean, a lot of what I do in the group, and the group knows it as well, that I'm all about keeping that positive mindset and not having these things over your head that constantly drags you down and constantly kind of making you feel a little bit yuck. Um, if there's things you can move on and move off your plate, then that's great. Um, and A, you're going to feel amazing once it's back off into submission again um so i'm all for if you can prioritize it like you said you, you, you can't always do it um but if you can get it off your plate within two weeks because 
two weeks is enough to have this sort of, you know, especially if you've got a review at two that's annoying you <laughs> and you're angry and you get a bit frustrated, um, then, you know, I mean, sit on it for a bit. I do believe that, you know, you need to sit on a reviewer's comments as well so you don't get angry and you get over that sort of angry part if it's a bit of a frustrating response. Um, you know, review, um, but then, but then act on it. And I think, you know, get it done get it back to your supervisor within a week or so, at least a, a, a rough, you know, a go with some of the re- reviewers comments. Um, with the students, I always recommend um, go through, do the dot pointing, like you said. So we number the comments. Um, so they really work on mapping out the response letter for us. Um, they then have a go at writing the responses for the ones that they really think they can. So if they're comfortable, I'll let my students write the responses, you know, as much as they can. Um, and then we sort of come back and we discuss what they've done. We discuss the kind of the really tricky ones a bit more, and then they go back and do sort of a second effort. And that's usually enough. Like I'm all about teaching, you know, anything that you do with your supervisor that ideally there should only be two rounds of editing or two rounds of drafts because you can have an unlimited amount of drafts happening oh, yeah. for students and supervisors. And if we can nail that process down, then we save a lot on time. And I'm, I'm quite big on this as well. Um, so with revisions, yeah, we sort of we sort of do a two-week thing. You know, I'll, I give, if it's a student paper, I'll give them the, the, the go at it first. Um, or I say, you know, bring me the tricky ones and we have a chat about it and then they can go off and, and have a go at it. And then we sort of have a second round and that, that's usually enough to kind of fix it all up. Um, but it does depend. Sometimes we have to reanalyze. You have to add more analysis or more stuff. That can, that can take time. Oh, yeah. um, but I'm all for getting it off your plate because they it's something that sits in your head and it annoys you, right? Yeah. I'm not sure how you feel about sitting there. <laughs> no, um, I, I, exactly the same. Like I, I have a... um. Uh, a Kanban board, which is something which is um, it's 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 used uh, traditionally in sort of manufacturing. I've got I used to have a physical one, but now everything moved online. It's digital, so I use um I used to use Trello for this. Now I use a Notion. So I, I use yeah. Notion for for my project management, and essentially it's different categories. Um, maybe you've spoken about this to um uh, to 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 your group previously, but essentially I've got like one column which is ideas. So if I have a research idea. Um, anything I just kind of put, put, put there and then I have drafts, like a drafts column. And then I have, um, first version submitted under revision. And my goal is to move everything across, across the board and get everything a- across as much as possible. And, um, and then I can sort of see exactly where everything is at. And, um, when I'm, when I'm like, okay, what, what am I doing now? I can actually look at the board going, okay, I have this revision, which is sitting there. Let's move it to the next column. Um, okay, the, the paper's been accepted. Great. What I'm going to work on notes. Oh, cool. Here are the 10 ideas I've had previously. Let's move one of those ideas into a draft. And it's just moving stuff across the column. It's a lot more fun having a physical board. Um, but <laughs> that's, uh, I, I don't, I don't get to use that much often, but, uh, yeah, I have a digital, a digital Kanban board where I, I try and move all these papers across from idea all the way to published. It really helps me. Mm, and there's something motivating about seeing things moving physically oh, yeah. and or just ticking things off like it's so it's so motivating to get stuff tick off like we teach the students in the group about you know just commit to three things every day which is not a lot yeah, but if you right. can do three things and you can actually physically tick them off every day how motivating is that you know you feel accomplished you feel like you've done something you know because our our deadlines are so long and they're so far away and you know we don't feel like we're getting anything done because the thesis is not due for another two years or you know we've got big projects that we're running and that takes you know four years to get them done whereas if you physically write down some of the things you're trying to get done you know and make them sort of you know 
manageable things and you're ticking them off. It's the, it's the best thing. Um, really oh, motivating. It's, 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 it's such, it's such a good feeling. And I, I think, um, you know, one of the big tasks that we, that we have as, as, as researchers is, is, is writing and these things can take weeks sometimes. So, Sometimes what I like doing is if I'm, if I'm in a big writing stage, um, instead of sort of focusing on finish the paper, because finishing the paper is going to take a long time, I basically look at my goal is today I'm going to have um, seven uninterrupted work sessions, seven Pomodoro sessions, and I tick I tick those things off. And once I get to the end of the day, for, then for me, um, at least when I'm in a writing stage, that's my sense of accomplishment because it's much easier to kind of say I wrote for for you know for I did seven forty minute sessions rather than because some days you're only going to be yeah. writing a paragraph, you're going to be reading, 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 mm-hmm. read, reading and writing. Um, but by actually saying no, I did this amount of focused work for the day, then that then then that's enough. And uh, and uh, I like every hour sort of tick off a tally, tick off a tally, tick off a tally. So yeah, it's the same same sort of principle that that really works for me. Yeah. Yeah, and I think keeping the focus, you know, especially as you progress through careers, that what makes us good in our work and what what keeps our jobs in some way is the fact that we need to publish papers and potentially write grants. Um, and for me, anything that, that relates to papers or writing, for me, has to take priority above everything else because that is the part that we sort of, you know, that we're known for and what we sort of are set out to do. Um, we don't always get time to do it and we always have all these other distractions coming in that always kind of dominates. But I I always sort of teach the students that, you know, you're writing your papers, you know, if you're doing grants, you know, they're the things that really matters for you. That's where you should be putting more of your time into it. You know, all the other stuff, if you're teaching a little bit or you're, you know, mentoring or helping here and there or running your project even, you know, yes, those things need to get done, but it's the writing that gives you your marks. You know, it's the writing that sort of gets things done for you, whether it's thesis or um, papers or grants, you know, so you have to find time to build them into it. That That's your absolute priority in your, your sort of day-to-day sort of activities. Um, and if you just sort of, you know, take that on a positive note and go, well, if I just get a little bit of writing done every day, then I, I would be so far ahead or just get so much more done and I'll feel better about it rather than sort of putting it off thinking I'll fit it in somewhere. Yeah. Um, it needs to be the thing that you're protecting and looking out to do all the time. Um, totally agree. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Hey, our time is up. Um you know, so we're going to wrap it up here. Um, thank you so much for your time, for sharing all these valuable insights on all these topics that are so current. And so I think, you know, worth picking up on, you know, for all students and for anyone else that's watching this. Um, you know, we have only scratched the surface of all these topics. They are major topics, um, you know, but they, they will definitely sort of give everyone a feel for what's out there and, and kind of then go and find more information about it. Um, we spoke about you dropping in some links for us about where we can find some more information about it and, you know, all your resources because you do teach, you know, a lot about open sciences. Um, you know, Daniel's also a really good meta-analysis person um, which is a whole other session that he's you know famous for i would say um so thank you so much for coming in and doing this for us um Pleasure. You know, it's been great to sort of touch base and, and, and share all your knowledge that you have um to our students been a pleasure great to uh great to chat again 